Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalbethanchel. Before 2018 draws to a close, we're highlighting some of the Where We Live conversations that have stayed with us. This show gives me the opportunity to interview really interesting people who are doing important work. Some of them remind us not to forget the contributions of Connecticut residents, like Constance Baker Motley. Later, we'll hear from Dr. Gary Ford Jr. about his book on Baker Motley, who once lived in New Haven. She was a civil rights attorney for the NAACP in the 1960s, and later became the first black woman to serve as a federal judge. First, we reflect on the history of this place we call home, a history that's not often discussed. Connecticut beaches are one of the state's most beautiful assets, but not everyone gets equal access to them. I spoke with author Andrew Carl about his book on a local activist who fought to open up Connecticut's shoreline to everyone, especially minority youth. The book is called Free the Beaches, the story of Ned Cole and the battle for America's most exclusive shoreline. Andrew, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you for having me. So what drew you to focus in on this history of privatization on Connecticut's shoreline? Yeah, I'd always, I've always been interested in looking at the history of, of inequality and land use in America and understanding the sort of relationship between the two and also the sort of history of, of environmental injustice. And Ned Cole is a person who really sort of brought these issues into focus. Um, and that was sort of what ultimately drew me to his story. And also just the sort of um, how captivating he was in, as an individual and how many um, sort of critical issues that his organization raised um, during that time. Well, where did you grow up, Andrew? Is this something when you said you've always been interested in, in these issues, something that you noticed growing up? You know, I grew up in Ohio, so <laughs> far from the coast, but um, nevertheless had been always drawn to um, beaches and coastal areas as um, a particularly fragile environmental resource, but also one that has experienced profound change as a result of development. And also the kind of, you know, the tension between that desire for openness, the sense that beaches belong to everyone versus the reality, which is that in America today, many coastal areas are very exclusive and exclusionary to the general public. So if we look at history, you know, when did this push for uh, privatizing uh, beach access in Connecticut and other places really take off? You know, it began in Connecticut very early, and in many respects, um, Connecticut was sort of a trendsetter in the in the move toward um, privatizing um, shorelines. Um, really, in the early 1900s, you began to see the proliferation of private beach associations up and down the shorelines, and these are sort of a forerunner to the modern gated community in that they are sort of governed, um, have a sort of private form of governance, and also sort of um, privatized public space, namely their beaches. Um, but th so that was, in a sense, a sort of a trend that we began to see um, spread across the U.S. Um, really in the post-World War II decades. But in Connecticut, it began much earlier in the early 20th century. Uh, here in Connecticut, many of us are familiar with uh, the term Gold Coast, and we'll be talking more about uh, that part of the, of the state in a little bit. But when we look at the people that were uh, part of these beach associations, they weren't all the super wealthy, were they? 
No, not at all. I mean, that was actually the model that sort of um, was developed in the early 20th century was one that would uh, sort of had prefabricated um, communities that were, would really allow for, say, middle class um, white families um, to be able to own a second home. Uh, many of these um, beach associations, especially on the, in the eastern half of the state, were, um, were often identified with either um, you know, religious or ethnic groups. There's the Irish beach, the Italian beach, the Jewish beach. But, you know, this is, um, you know, that, so in a sense, it was not um, all very super wealthy folks, but it was also very exclusionary. Um, you know, all of these beach associations invariably were governed by r- racial covenants that barred the sale of lots to um, African-Americans. So, you know, even though it was not, these were not all, you know, very wealthy um, communities, they were ones that were very much off limits to um, a segment of the state's population. And when we look at Connecticut's coast, uh, we were looking at uh, more than 200 miles of shoreline. But how much of that was actually open uh, to anyone, Andrew? You know, less than seven, around seven miles of it um, was considered generally open to the public. And the rest was either um, in, you know, in the hands of uh, private homeowners or um, were public beaches that were really public in name only. Um, they, they were res- you know, many communities restricted their public beaches to residents only or placed um, severe restrictions on the ability of non-residents to be able to actually access them. So as a result, by the time you get to the 1960s and 70s, when the, my story really um, begins, um, there's very few places along the state shoreline that um, a person, say, living in Hartford or elsewhere in, in the state who you know, wasn't fortunate enough to be able to own a home along the shore, um, there was very few places that they could actually go to enjoy the shoreline. And you mentioned in your book uh, these were the um, the result of what's called exclusionary zoning, uh, keeping certain mm-hmm. people out of specific areas, beach associations and whatnot. Yeah, I mean, exclusionary zoning was really the sort of chief mechanism of segregations across the state and really throughout the Northeast. I mean, you have communities that um, often zoned land in a way that made it next to impossible for um, low-income people to live in their communities. I mean, in, in Greenwich, for instance, you know, over one ha- over one third of the entire town was zoned at four-acre lots minimum, so that you had to you know have your house on a four-acre lot to be able to even live there. And um, this was a sort of pattern that we saw throughout the state is that, you know, you had really areas of concentrated affluence that was kind of locked in. And as a result, you know, you know people of modest means really had no ability to move into communities because of local zoning ordinances. This is where we live. Uh, with us from a studio at University of Virginia is Andrew Carl. He's an associate professor of history and African-American studies and the author of this new book, Free the Beaches, the story of Ned Cole and the battle for America's most exclusive shoreline. Andrew, tell us about Ned. So he he grew up in Hartford, born to an Irish immigrant. Uh, what's his story? Yeah, Ned grew up the sort of, you know, the life of a sort of comfortable middle class um, white American living in post-war America. He um, went to Fairfield University, graduated with honors, um, and was sort of living the dream, as at least as his parents envisioned. He um, returned to Hartford and got a job at, um, in the insurance industry. He was all sort of set to um, live that sort of middle class life of comfort. Um, and then he made a very sharp detour. Mm-hmm. So let's talk about some of the, I guess, the factors that led him to that detour. So, um, you know, his mother in, in the book you write, you know, she was, she always hoped that he would have a comfortable life uh, working in, in the insurance industry. But when he went to Fairfield University, he started to meet um, some people who challenged the notions that he grew up with, one being a, an African-American professor? 
Yeah, Walter Petrie, who um, who was a professor at Fairfield and was um, also he you know he as Ned described really opened his eyes to the problem of racism in America and inequality, and he did so through um, taking groups of students down to Harlem um, and and walking them through the neighborhoods, getting them acquainted with um, the culture, with the um, sort of you know the, the community as well as the struggles, and um, got them to sort of see firsthand um, African American life and culture and um, urban inequality, not just sort of, you know, talking about it in a classroom. And I think that really stuck with Ned, the idea of sort of direct engagement, um, communication on a sort of interpersonal level, as opposed to sort of intellectualizing um, these problems. And he went on to graduate from Fairfield and work uh, in the insurance industry. But there was another uh, point uh, that made him kind of question what he was doing with his life. And that was when uh, JFK was assassinated. Yeah, I mean, John F. Kennedy was someone who was very influential to him. He really looked up to him, as you know, again, as a sort of um, young Irish-American Catholic. And um, his death really sort of led um, Ned to sort of question what he was doing in life. And, you know, he had he'd long been struck by that sort of call to service that Kennedy had issued with his um, inaugural address. And, you know, after his death, he began to ask himself what he was doing to help contribute to making this a a more um, engaged, um, less cynical country. And um, that was when he decided to quit his job and start this sort of domestic peace corps, as he described it, called Revitalization Corps. And we're going to learn more about the Revitalization Corps in just a little bit. But I'm curious, uh, Andrew, what the reaction was of his family to this change uh, in his life, especially his mother. You have an interesting anecdote in your book. They they were not too pleased, his mother in particular. I mean, again, she was someone who very much sort of wanted him to sort of live a very conventional life and um, was horrified um, by his decision to, you know, quit a job, a you know, very you know, promising career and um, start, you know, this sort of anti-poverty organization um, that was a, in particular um, addressing problems of racism and in seeking to engage and work with um, the city's African-American communities to the point where she had concluded that he had literally sort of, you know, lost lost his mind. She actually had him committed to a state mental hospital um, after he had made this decision. Um, that was how sort of fiercely opposed she was. And she actually blamed um, Walter Petrie, the professor who she thought had poisoned her son's mind in college, um, for his decision. Much of the Connecticut shoreline was once off limits to people unless you lived in a shore town or belonged to a beach association. Today we're learning about the fight to open beaches to the public. Connecticut resident Ned Cole helped bring awareness to the issue beginning in the 1960s. And our guest today is Andrew Carl, author of a new book called Free the Beaches, the story of Ned Cole and the battle for America's most exclusive shoreline. He joins us today from a studio at the University of Virginia. Up next, we're going to learn more about how Cole's campaign was received by shore towns. Do you remember the fight to open up Connecticut's beaches? Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalbethanchel. We're learning about Ned Cole, a Connecticut resident and anti-poverty activist that worked to make Connecticut's shoreline accessible to all. Author Andrew Carl documents uh, his efforts in his new book, Free the Beaches, the story of Ned Cole and the battle for America's most exclusive shoreline. Andrew's joining us from the studio at University of Virginia in Charlottesville. And there's an excerpt of his book on our website, wmpr.org slash where we live. Uh, Andrew, we were talking about uh, Ned Cole, uh, 
leaving this uh, his career of working in insurance to form the Revitalization Corps, uh, similar to the Peace Corps. But uh, talk us through um, how he went about doing that and getting people to buy into what he was, uh, was the message that he was trying to relay. Yeah, I mean, as you said at the outset, I mean, he was very much focused on waging a war on apathy, in particular, waging that in the suburbs, you know, amongst the the middle class whites and you know, in West Hartford and um, other suburbs that had sort of really left the city, and as he saw it, abandoned um, its African American community and Puerto Rican communities. And um, he really wanted to sort of engage with them and sort of find ways to sort of build bridges of communication that could combat the sort of vicious, cancerous stereotypes that many um, suburban whites had of um, urban America and particularly of uh, African-American communities. And he started by opening up an office. And what about the, uh, I guess, the connection to Harlem when he would go there? So did he start in Harlem and then work in yeah. Hartford? Yeah. Yeah, so he, you know, he started by opening up a storefront in, in Hartford, um, call, and he put in, you know, he put um, classifieds in the newspaper calling on um, folks to volunteer their time. You know, he said, you know, just three hours a week, um, either tutoring, um, working on helping um, young African-American men find jobs, other, a variety of activities. So it was very much sort of of the moment trying to respond to immediate needs. But then he also, it began to grow rapidly. Um, you know, many um, national publications began to write stories on Revitalization Corps, and chapters began to spread. across. Um, soon he opened, he opened up a chapter in Harlem, that he, and he sort of spent many years going back and forth between Hartford and Harlem. But then others who were inspired by his call to service um, opened up their own chapters on college campuses and in cities um, ranging from Miami, Florida, all the way out to um, Watts, L.A., how did uh, African-Americans look at Ned Cole and think, you know, who is this guy uh, coming into our neighborhoods? And I'm curious, you mentioned he was trying to reach out uh, to uh, whites in in places like West Hartford. Were they skeptical? Yeah, I mean, initially, there was a lot of skepticism as to what um, Ned was doing um, on the north end of Hartford. I mean, but I think, you know, he really was able to um, win the confidence and affection, really, of, of many in the community just by being himself and, and really spending time getting to know people in a, in a sort of you know, sincere manner. You know, he really didn't come in with any agenda or any assumptions, but really just spent a lot of time listening, um, engaging, you know, sort of rapping with folks on the street, in barbershops, um, in their homes, and, and also really expecting the same of, of the um, suburban whites who um, volunteered with Revitalization Corps. You know, the, Families who um, were um, who participated in this were expected to go um, into um, the n- north end of Hartford, get to meet family African American families in their homes, as opposed to just simply having them come to the suburbs. So it was very much about sort of breaking down these divisions um, in a on a sort of interpersonal level. Meanwhile, uh, there's a lot of unrest happening in U.S. cities, also here in Hartford, with uh, um, how African-Americans were treated, um, where they were subjected to live. Can you walk us through some of how that unrest helped fuel uh, some of the activism and why people wanted to follow a Ned Cole and into this group? Yeah, I mean, this is, as you probably know, I mean, many of the listeners know, you know, the 1960s and the summers in the 1960s were a particular time of, of, of racial unrest in American cities. Um, Hartford, w- in particular, was racked by um, an uprising often referred to as a riot in the summer of 67, Harlem um, in 1964. And um, this was a time in particular, and this is kind of how... Um, 
Ned also kind of gravitated toward the issue of recreational inequality. Uh, many of these incidents were sparked by um, conflicts over um, outdoor recreational space. Um, but also, you know, as he saw, underlying many of the grievances of African American communities was this issue of of recreational deprivation. The fact that, and the fact that you know, public officials didn't seem to care about the fact that uh, many. Um, inner city children lacked safe places to play. In Hartford in particular, um, there was a shockingly high number of drowning deaths of, of black youth um, in the city, um, in particular along a stretch of the Park River that was close to two housing projects. And, um, the, and the sort of response of public officials was, was, was complete indifference. And this was something that really um, was one of the sort of issues that was um, fueling unrest. And ultimately, the Kerner Commission that you know issued its report in 1968 identified um, recreational inequality um, as one of the sort of um, high levels of grievance um, that was common across many of the um, riot-torn cities in America. Uh, you mentioned the, the Kerner Commission. This was uh, the National Advisory Commission on Civil Disorders, the Kerner Commission releasing this report on, on urban violence in 1968. So when that report came out, I mean, but with, if Ned Cole wasn't there with his group, uh, the Revitalization Corps, again, uh, bringing awareness to the disparities, is this something that would have just been buried? You know, I mean, you know, Ned was someone who sort of thought that the Kerner Commission report should be read by every American. I mean, you know, he was he thought that this should be gospel. You know, that this would be something that um, would help sort of awaken, in particular, those suburban white families who had seemed to sort of um, become cold and indifferent to the problems of urban America. That by reading that and understanding the lessons. Um, of it, we could begin to work towards solutions. So he really um, was a, you know, proselytized on um, the importance of, of the Kerner Commission and what um, its findings um, really said to um, all America. He was uh, encouraging the armchair activists uh, to actually do something and not just talk about it in their homes and with yeah, the people abs- they know. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, he, you know, he, as he described himself, he was someone who believed in gut liberalism, not the sort of kind that, you know, you would see happen in a, you know, a college classroom or, um, you know, result in position papers or other sort of statements. It was, it was manifest through action. And that was, and it, and it came from the gut. It came from instinct. And that was something that sort of guided him throughout this time period was the idea that, you know, we, we don't have time to sit around and talk about these issues. We need to sort of um, engage on a direct level and help improve people's lives and work towards toward a better country. Now, how did uh, Ned Cole gravitate toward beach access um, from spending time, again, uh, highlighting the disparities and the issues of poverty within uh, neighborhoods and cities? Yeah, I mean, it was really, in a sense, almost by accident. I mean, you know, as one of the many initiatives that Revitalization Corps was leading was one that was aimed at sort of providing um, summer recreational um, options for um, African-American children living on the north end of Hartford. And um, one of the sort of ideas that he came up with was to rent a van and bring a, um, a group of kids down to the shoreline. Um, he didn't think of this as a protest at all. He just thought that this would be a good, um, you know, activity. And, and and many of the African-American mothers who were critical in um, the work that Revitalization Corps did were very strongly in support of it as well. You know, they wanted to see their children get these type of, you know, enrichment activities and, and the types of recreation that um, the rest of Americans seem to sort of, you know, consider a sort of right of childhood. And um, so they sort of, you know, started this initiative to start, um, you know, sending children to the shore. But when they got there, they discovered that there was nowhere they could go. Because there were uh, so many private areas due to beach associations that had been formed along these shore towns? 
Yeah, exactly. And 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 even the public beaches, with the exception of the state beaches at Hammonasset, um, you know, really, you know, there were very few places that were um, open to the general public. And and also he didn't he really wanted to sort of engage with the folks who lived and in, in vacationed along the shoreline. He envisioned you know sort of had a very rosy image of of white and black children playing together and um, white and black parents talking and, and realizing their common humanity and finding sort of ways to begin to break down those stereotypes. He thought that leisure spaces and leisure activities could actually be a vehicle for um, building a more integrated society. But as he discovered, um, you know, the, you know, the white f- folks who lived along these shorelines were not interested in that at all. In fact, you know, were not they were not greeted warmly at all. Andrew Carl, associate professor of history and African American studies at the University of Virginia, author of the new book *Free the Beaches: The Story of Ned Cole and the Battle for America's Most Exclusive Shoreline*. Um, we wish we should say that he wasn't able to join us uh, uh, due to health issues, uh, Ned Cole. But Andrew, you're, you're, we're talking through your book uh, that you did a lot of research on uh, what led Ned Cole uh, to try to free the beaches and raise awareness. So I'm curious if you could walk us through some of uh, the first incidents when he rented the buses and went to a particular beach uh, in Old Lyme, for example. Yeah, and um, you know, really, you know, his his he became really radicalized on this issue after um, a particularly negative incident at, in Old Lyme in the summer of 1971 when they came to one of the um, private beaches along the shoreline um, and and were you know received very you know hostile um, reactions from residents, um, you know, racist sort of epithets being thrown at um, the parents and children, and at that moment he really was you know it opened his eyes to the extent of the problem and of the sort of pervasive um, racism among many of the um, families who lived along the shore. And at that point, he began to realize that um, this issue of of beach access was about more than just the beach itself. In fact, it was very much a kind of issue about um, the public's right to public space and about the sort of um, structural barriers that had been sort of put up along the shoreline and and throughout society that prevented um, African-Americans from um, freely participating in um, these sort of, you know, things that, um, you know, money Americans also enjoyed. Uh, you write in your book whenever there were efforts to uh, whether to uh, pass legislation to protect the coast or to maybe um, make the uh, local autonomy uh, less strict, there was a big backlash. So politicians weren't getting anywhere. Yeah, I mean, this is a, something that I think I, I, you know, I discovered in the course of doing research for this was how uh, privatization and the sort of exclusionary culture that we began to, you know, you saw in many of these communities was not just sort of antisocial and wasn't just sort of, you know, didn't just have effects on, um, you know, on society, but was also environmentally destructive because it resulted in um, measures that were often, you know, very damaging to the shoreline itself and also, you know, sort of led to the um, a sort of political culture that was resistant to regulation out of fear that, um, you know, sort of regu- regulatory bodies, whether they be state or federal, might um, undermine the ability of, of private homeowners or beach communities to restrict access. And so as a result, you began to see um, sort of a kind of um, efforts to really sort of either prevent um, legislation or really sort of gut um, regulatory agencies' um, ability to um, manage shorelines in the interest of environmental protection and in the interest of the public. 
Andrew Carl is with us from the University of Virginia, author of this book, Free the Beaches, the story of Ned Cole and the battle for America's most exclusive shoreline. Uh, so while uh, Ned and the RC and little kids uh, were trying to raise awareness by uh, visiting these beaches as a protest, uh, this was also uh, making its way through the courts. And was there any success in opening the beaches uh, for people in Connecticut? Well, not during the time when Ned was most active on the issue. It didn't come until 2001, and it was as a result of a lawsuit filed by um, a law student um, named Brendan Layden, um, who was stopped when trying to jog through um, Greenwich's um, beach and um, because he was a non-resident. And they um, said that, you know, non-residents were not allowed on the shoreline. And he... Um, decided to sue the town, um, challenging the constitutionality, um, both on the grounds of the public trust doctrine that you know states that the pub, that the shoreline is is public property, but also on the basis of um, free speech rights that they were restricting his right to free speech and association. So um, that worked its way through the courts in the late 1990s, and ultimately um, the Connecticut Supreme Court ruled in 2001 that towns like Greenwich could not um, restrict public beaches to residents only. Now, uh, because they couldn't restrict them, uh, shore towns, other places, especially Greenwich, found different ways to try to restrict non-residents. What were some of those tactics? Yeah, I mean, they really sort of resisted and sought to undermine the spirit of that decision um, ever since and continue to do so, um, you know, either through um, play, you know, removing par- public parking spaces or um, making parking lots um, near, near the shoreline um, open to residents only. Um, putting in place a whole cumbersome set of um, uh, requirements in order to uh, purchase a beach pass. So, for instance, in Greenwich, you know, to buy a beach pass, you have to go to the opposite side of the town in, a, in some city office building that's not even open on the weekends in order to buy a beach pass. I mean, really putting in place just a number of hoops that are all meant to sort of dissuade, if not make it you know, practically impossible for um, outsiders to um, get in. What is Ned's, Ned Cole's legacy today, Andrew? Well, I think, you know, the legacy is one, you know, you can see it in the lives of people like Liebert and many others who are really touched and, and really um, affected by the work that he did um, in the community. I would say also, you know, on the issue of his activism, I think it's a cautionary tale for, you know, the need for um, activists to um, form partnerships and collaborate and form coalitions and be and not sort of allow, um, you know, a sort of issue or a movement to become too reliant on one individual because, um, you know, Ned sort of, you know, he marched to the beat of his own drum often, and he um, sort of resisted the kind of sort of, you know, building coalitions with other groups and organizations um, to the point when when his um, health began to suffer um, in the 1980s, um, when he sort of, you know, you know reached retirement years, um, it was difficult to sort of continue the worker revitalization core as a result. Andrew Carl, Associate Professor of History and African American Studies, also author of this book, Free the Beaches, the story of Ned Cole and the battle for America's most exclusive shoreline. Thanks so much for speaking with me. Oh, thank you so much. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Coming up, we learn about Constance Baker Motley. The New Haven resident was a civil rights attorney who argued several cases before the U.S. Supreme Court. More after the short break.
This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Constance Baker Motley was a pioneer in many ways, first serving as a civil rights attorney in the 1960s, where she won several defining desegregation cases. She would later become the first black woman to serve as a federal judge. My guest is Dr. Gary Ford Jr., who's written a book about the New Haven native called Constance Baker Motley, One Woman's Fight for Civil Rights and Equal Justice Under Law. Gary, welcome to our show. Thank you so much for having me. Tell us, when did you first hear about Constance Baker Motley? I first heard about Constance Baker Motley when I was a little tyke um, growing up in New Canaan, Connecticut. I grew up in a family of lawyers, and growing up in New Canaan in the early 80s, there actually weren't that many black attorneys, um, actually in all of Connecticut. So um, it was a small circle. Through that small circle, I met Connie Royster, who is uh, Judge Motley's niece, and she, in turn, introduced me to Judge Motley. She passed away in 2005 uh, after you met her. And again, you knew about her story through your family uh, connections. Uh, what made you then write a book about her later on? I, it's a couple reasons. First of all, when I was um, at Harvard, I was studying African-American studies. And I was focusing on the civil rights movement because that was my interest. And I was reading about um, all these cases, these desegregation cases that really uh, were crucial for the movement. And I remember hearing her talking about these cases as a child. And I was like, well, we have James Meredith, we have Charlene Hunter Gall, we have Hamilton Holmes, uh, but there's no mention of the woman who actually represented them and actually uh, won those cases and gained them entry to those universities. Um, so I, that struck me as a bit odd. And I began to learn that the African-American history that I was learning uh, was incomplete. You know, we have this traditional narrative of the civil rights movement that tends to focus uh, mostly on black men, uh, usually in the clergy, and it does not have enough space for other alternative leaders um, who did uh, crucial things for the movement, but because they're not in that traditional leadership role, they are kind of overlooked. Uh, women like Constance Baker Motley, who were overlooked. Again, I'm speaking with Dr. Gary Ford Jr., who's written a book about this Connecticut native. Uh, she was uh, raised in New Haven. Uh, the book is Constance Baker Motley, One Woman's Fight for Civil Rights and Equal Justice Under Law. I was curious about her upbringing. Can we start there? Um, she was born in New Haven. Tell us about her family. Yes, her uh, family, I think, informed her worldview very much so. Uh, her parents were from Nevis. Uh, they were immigrants. Uh, typical immigrant story. You, you move to the United States. Um, you try to work your, your way up and make a better life for your children. Uh, so her mother uh, was um, a stay-at-home mom, and her father uh, was a chef. Uh, he was a cook, which was one of the few occupations that was open to black men at that time period. And he worked at uh, some of the prominent uh, Yale eating clubs, including the Skull and Bone Society. So she grew up in a, a large family. Uh, she's one of 12 siblings. And her time in New Haven, uh, she described it as fairly free of racism, except for a few incidences, which is not to say that New Haven was perfect at the time she grew up there, but uh, it was far preferable to what was going on in the South at that time. So in New Haven, uh, she, there was a lot of West Indians that were living in the part of uh, the city that her family also lived? Yes. And how did that play a role in her upbringing and where they, the family uh, hung out, the church they belonged to? Uh, she went to St. Luke's Episcopal Church. Um, she um, grew up around a lot of West Indians, as you said, particularly uh, ones of, uh, who, who were under British rule. Um, so a very similar shared culture. 
you know, uh, the this reserve nature uh, that's typical um, of uh, people coming from, say, Barbados or Nevis or um, uh, Jamaica. Uh, so uh, that was kind of provided a buffer for her because she had this uh, this community and the support network that was beyond her family. And I think that allowed her to kind of grow up uh, not experiencing some of the, the, the biases that other people might have been experiencing in New Haven at that time. So she was growing up in the 20s and 30s. Yes. Again, uh, New Haven was a, a diverse city of immigrants. Yes. And uh, when was her first time where she was she noticed discrimination because of the color of her skin? Uh, the first time was when she went with a group of friends. It was uh, a diverse group of friends, and they went to uh, go swim um, at the beach. And uh, her friends were allowed in, and yet she was denied entry to that beach, a uh, place of public accommodation because of the color of her skin. And that really struck her as the first time when she really felt that she was being othered. Uh, and, and that was a, had a profound effect on her later in life. When did she uh, first get a, a glimpse of the fact that you know women could be attorneys too? Because at that time there weren't very many women, if at all, practicing law. Uh, who were her role models? Yes, hardly any. Um, there were two uh, black women in particular um, who she knew of in childhood that kind of gave her the courage to pursue her dreams. You know, usually if you see somebody who looks like you is doing something, then that makes it possible for you to do it. Those two women were Eunice Hunton Carter and Jane Bolin, who both worked in New York. I think one was appointed by Dewey, the other was appointed by uh, LaGuardia. And so she knew of these women, and so she knew it was possible for a black woman to become a lawyer. What about her family? Did they think it was possible for Constance to become a lawyer? Uh, that's an interesting, interesting question. Her, her mother actually, when she told her mother she wanted to be a lawyer, her mother uh, told her that you're better off becoming a hairdresser. Um, so that's a bit of a discouragement right there. Uh, but you have to remember, at this time period, becoming a lawyer was kind of like uh, saying, I want to become you know, an astronaut. It was something that was not um, in the realm of possibility for you know, a black woman because there hadn't been hardly any of them. So uh, her mother was really trying to protect her um, from you know, the dis- disappointment of not being able to fulfill her dreams um, and, and in so doing happened to discourage her. But of course, uh, Judge Miley being who she was, um, she wasn't going to take discouragement lying down. She wanted to go on to college, uh, but uh, was it difficult for her family to afford college at that time? And how did she get an in, so to speak? Yes. uh, So being one of 12 children and also uh, with a single income household, uh, it was very difficult for them to afford college. And in fact, she couldn't afford college just based on her family. Uh, we didn't have all the scholarships that are available now. And so she took uh, jobs to Eleanor Roosevelt, her national youth program. So she was doing that. She was refurnishing furniture. And she's also becoming engaged in uh, politics uh, locally, civic engagement locally. And she spoke up at a, a, a meeting to this uh, white philanthropist named Clarence Blakesley. And basically, um, he had built a community center for African Americans to use in New Haven. And was and concerned. Avenue? Yes. Avenue? Yes. Mm-hmm. And was concerned that they weren't using it. And none of the black people wanted to tell him that the reason they weren't using it was because there's no black people on the board and they didn't feel like they had any representation. So that's why it wasn't being used. 
Constance Baker Motley, being one who always would speak truth to power, actually stood up at this community meeting and said it over the gasps of some people in the audience because they thought that was quite rude. But uh, he found it refreshing and found her to be um, uh, very mature and very wise for her age. And so he uh, decided that he was going to fund her education as far as she wanted to go. Um, and that's how she got to go to college and then law school. She made uh, she made the decision to uh, pursue a college degree down south. Yes. Why, why did she want to do it there? Uh, I think she wanted to experience uh, black culture and go to an all-black university. And at the time, those were in the south. And so she got down to Fisk, and once um, she got down there, uh, riding on the Jim Crow car and uh, some of the aspects of Southern life, uh, she felt was a really a, a hard adjustment. So she didn't uh, she didn't end up finishing at Fisk. She finished up at, at NYU. Uh, now you said that she transferred up to NYU um, and then eventually to Columbia Law School. So one of the uh, the first um, moments in her career where she was a first there too. Yes, um, she was um, one of the first Black women at Columbia Law School. Her firsts uh, are many, uh, and she um, basically, when she got to Columbia Law School, she started working at the LDF. She's the first woman working there. Clarence Blakesley actually had LDF hoped, Legal Defense Fund. Yes, Legal Defense Fund, NAACP Legal Defense Fund, sorry. Clarence Blakesley had actually hoped to set her up with a position on at a Wall Street firm after she finished law school, uh, but she informed him that uh, she was uh, going to go work for the LDF instead. And she met Thurgood Marshall. Uh, tell me about what that was like for her. She had great a- admiration for Thurgood Marshall. He, from a very, very um, early on in their relationship, he began to give her uh, significant responsibility. Matter of fact, she drafted one of the complaints that it became Brown versus Board of Education. So they, all of the members of the LDF, uh, were very open in allowing her to assume responsibility and uh, actually go down south and be lead lead counsel on, on uh, many of these cases that she argued. Why were they open to her as a woman, as a, an attorney? Because, again, she's one of the first, and during that time, a lot of women weren't in these roles. Why were they accepting of her? I think even though a lot of these were men of their times, they, they recognized her talent. Uh, while she was even still in law school before she had graduated, Um, Her work was exemplary, and um, I think the LDF um, was not so well-funded as to where they could uh, basically squander talent uh, such as hers um, by having her perform secretarial duties or something else like that, which wouldn't really... Uh, maximize her talents. This is where we live. Um, speaking with Dr. Gary Ford, Jr., Assistant Professor of Africana Studies at Lehman College, also author of Constance Baker Motley, One Woman's Fight for Civil Rights and Equal Justice Under Law. As we're learning today, Constance was a New Haven native, and she is one of the unsung women of the civil rights movement. Let's talk about uh, Dr. Ford, Gary, about um, Constance Baker Motley's uh, contribution to that historic desegregation case, Brown versus Board. Tell us about her role in that. Yes, yeah, so Brown versus Board was uh, towards the early end of her career at the LDF, uh, but she was uh, one of the attorneys who was working on that case and actually drafted one of the complaints that was merged into Brown versus Board of Education. Because there was a few different cases that were merged into one for Brown one and then Brown two. Now, uh, when she did that work, uh, you mentioned earlier that uh, Thurgood Marshall, the team, felt comfortable sending her down south uh, to do a lot of the grassroots work and 
to meet and talk to the people. What was that like for her as a black woman, as an attorney, and how did the segregationists react to her? Well, I think uh, there's this notion that a uh, black woman being down south would be in less danger than a black man, even though uh, the history doesn't really back that up. I think Thurgood Marshall and some of the other uh, male attorneys at the LDF had made the argument, a matter of fact, she says this in her autobiography, that that she would have a better time in these southern courts because all white men had black mammies, I think was the quote. You know, a mammy being um, a slave woman uh, who would take care of the master's family, cook and take care of the kids, and was not seen as very threatening. In reality, uh, regardless of gender, if you went down south, even regardless of race in many cases, if you went down south and you were agitating and disrupting the way of life, the segregationist way of life, your your life was in danger. We have countless examples of uh, black men, black women, white men, white women being uh, assaulted or killed uh, down south trying to uh, do the work of integration. So who kept her safe? Um, when she was down south uh, in Mississippi and Georgia and Alabama uh, working all these school desegregation cases, uh, there were local members of the NAACP who would um, act as bodyguards because they couldn't count on the police to provide protection for her. Um, or the some local. of those police were members of the Klan? Yes. Some of them were moonlighting in white bedsheets. Um, that's just fact. And the local FBI was also had some, sometimes they were had their biases as well. Um, so it was um, mostly private security. The NAACP, but also sympathetic whites who were working with the NAACP and wanted to see segregation end in their communities. She also worked uh, with uh, the community in Birmingham uh, during the Children's Crusades when all of these children, uh, these thousands of students, uh, black students, who were trained in nonviolent uh, demonstrations to uh, desegregate the city of Birmingham. Um, talk, t- uh, talk us through her role there and how uh, she worked with uh, more well-known figures in the civil rights movement, including Dr. King. Yes. She represented Dr. King personally a few times, uh, got him out of jail a few times. In the Birmingham schools case, she was really critical to his ascension as a leader of the civil rights movement because in that schools case, they had planned a march on Sunday. And um, somebody else who actually his name escapes my mind right now had convinced Dr. King to include children in that march. And so they included the children. And then, of course, uh, the police responded with uh, hoses and dogs and um, the children were um, were harassed in that way and then all, also arrested en masse, thousands of kids arrested. And while they were in jail, they were also expelled from schools. And the parents weren't going to stand for that. I mean, it's one thing for them to um, go through the trials and tribulations of trying to integrate, but to have their children suffer in that manner and maybe not ever graduate uh, was too much for them. So... She was sent down south to get them out of jail and then also get them back in school uh, to get an injunction to prevent their expulsion. And she was able to do that. And because she was able to do that, it restored the faith of the parents in the movement. And they continued to support Dr. King, whereas otherwise they might not have. She went on to represent Dr. King in other struggles. How did he view her? Uh, he was a, a great a great admirer of Constance Baker Motley. As a matter of fact, later on, when um, when she was up for a federal judgeship, he was one. Of, Dr. King was one of the people that LBJ called uh, to get uh, a sense of of who Constance Baker Motley was. Uh, so he he felt that he owed her a debt not only for that Birmingham schools case, but also for getting him out of jail, 
uh, a few times, uh, America's Georgia and a couple other places. Uh, when was the breaking point for her where uh, she uh, moved on with her career and couldn't do this work anymore? That's a complicated issue. Basically, at the LDF, she'd been at the LDF for a while uh, and had won all of these segregation cases. Uh, but when the time came to pick a replacement for Thurgood Marshall, who was going uh, to the bench, they actually selected Jack Greenberg, um, who was a fantastic lawyer and um, you know has done a lot for civil rights. However, Judge Motley had actually been there longer than him, and her record was uh, equally distinguished, if not more so. Um, I can't think of somebody who had argued and won more civil rights cases, especially school segregation cases, than her. On the one hand, I think Thurgood Marshall and Bob Carter uh, were having a bit of a feud at this time because Thurgood Marshall was focusing most of his efforts on fundraising, uh, which is great. I mean, without money, you can't, you don't have the resources mm -hmm. to argue these cases. But Bob Carter felt like the most of the, the, the legal work was falling on his shoulders. Um, so he wanted Thurgood Marshall to focus more on that. Um, and so they had a rift, and Thurgood Marshall wanted to put somebody in who was more in line with his philosophy, and that was Jack Greenberg. So he moved very quickly to install Jack Greenberg as his successor, uh, whereas Bob Carter was supporting Constance Baker Motley. And so was um, uh, Medgar Evers, uh, who was her biggest cheerleader uh, for that position and was very upset when she didn't get it. Um, so there was a politics involved. I think also we have to look at these. These are men of their time. Even though they gave her vast amounts of responsibility and really nurtured her to be a civil rights lawyer, I think they might have also been uncomfortable at that time with having a woman in the top chair. And, uh, you know, so I think gender also played a role in her being passed over. Uh, she would leave the Legal Defense Fund, uh, eventually becoming the first black woman to serve in the New York State Senate. And then she got a call from the White House. What happened? Yes. So while she's in the New York State Senate, she became aligned with Bobby Kennedy. Bobby Kennedy was actually the one who initially put her name in for uh, a, a judgeship. However, uh, they had a falling out uh, when she supported a candidate which he did not support. And I guess he felt that she was going to basically rubber stamp <laughs> whatever he wanted uh, because uh, he was a Kennedy. Uh, but we know from a very early age that Motley is going to speak her truth no matter what. So after that, uh, it seemed as if Kennedy was sitting on her nomination. Um, and that's when uh, LBJ heard about her. And at this time, uh, LBJ and Bobby Kennedy were frenemies. You know, uh, they, there was a rivalry there. So LBJ took it upon himself to nominate her to the federal bench and then after he did so, um, he called Bobby Kennedy and asked uh, if he wanted to be the first one to congratulate her. At the time, uh, there were some who opposed her nomination because of sexism? Yes. Uh, so early on in her career, I think race was uh, uh, much more of a factor when she was going down south. I mean, gender was still an issue. Uh, but later on in New York, when she was um, being appointed to the bench, it became more about her gender. Uh, so originally, LBJ wanted to nominate her to the Second Circuit Court of Appeals. They're the ones who hear all the big Wall Street cases. It's very, it's a very uh, a prestigious appointment, and the the white men who were there did not want a woman on that court. So they were against that, and they had to compromise by uh, nominating her to the Southern District uh, Court in New York. However, there's also was some issues that she had to face there with regard to sexism.
Uh, because you've done so much research and you understand a lot about her life and what drove her to do the things that she did, when you, we look at America today, what do you think would be Judge Motley's uh, opinion of some of the movements happening today, whether it's Black Lives Matter or what's going on in politics today? Well, I think she probably would be disappointed with the the um, tribalism going on in politics right now, uh, the divisiveness. Um, you know, I think uh, she was a great believer in people seeing the common, uh, the things we have in common as opposed to our differences. Uh, so, um, you know, in the age now where we're having to deal with uh, people who uh, love to be in echo chambers and love to focus on what other people have uh, and taking that away because they think they'll benefit more from that, uh, I think she would be disappointed in that. She would, however, I think be very encouraged by uh, some of these movements that are going on. You have Black Lives Matter movement, which is uh, a civil rights organization that's actually created and run by mostly women. I think she would find that to be very um, compelling. Uh, you also have uh, the Never Again uh, movement going on nationwide now, starting in Florida. That is also uh, has, I'm not going to say women, but girls actually up front and, and leading and speaking their truth. Um, so I think she would be very encouraged about that. And I think she would also be encouraged with what seems like a wave of new new politicians who are coming uh, to challenge uh, the politics as usual going on right now. And I think she would be hopeful uh, with regard to that. I want to thank Dr. Gary Ford, Jr., Assistant Professor of Africana Studies at Lehman College, author of the book Constance Baker Motley, One Woman's Fight for Civil Rights and Equal Justice Under Law. Again, she was a New Haven native, a daughter of immigrants, accomplished so much, um, became a first in many facets. I should mention um, that she also was the first woman to serve as the Chief Justice of the District Court for the Southern District of New York, and she assumed that senior status until her death in 2005. Thank you, Gary, so much for coming in and telling us about Constance Baker Motley. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. Our show is produced by Lydia Brown and Carmen Baskoff. Check out WMPR.org slash where we live for more about the show. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Thanks for listening.